The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 98. Captain DeBridge. Spock here. Make yourself. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV, series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing one of those movies, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Steaker. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Folks, if you can, please share the podcast with your friends. Help us grow this community of Trek fans who are interested in talking about both the new series and the old series and everything in between. Uh, and that will, your sharing of the podcast helps us reach more listeners, and we greatly appreciate that. And this time we're talking about one of the most popular uh, Star Trek films of all time. Uh, we'll, later on, we'll be talking about one of the least popular, but <laughs> this one, let's just live in the happy <laughs> moment of today. This is November 1986. That's when it came out. and The uh, 20th anniversary of the original series. So this exactly. is the 20th anniversary film for Star Trek. That's right. Uh, and before the J.J. Abrams reboot in 2009, was it? Uh, off the top of my head. Yep. This was the most successful Star Trek fi- film made. Uh, so the J.J. Abrams one was even in when you even out the dollars. Uh, which know, is which is kind of surprising because I think if you ask fans, most people would say their favorite is Wrath of Khan. But Wrath of Khan wasn't as successful in the box, box right. office as well, this was. The I, it, I think almost everyone would agree of the original series films, it was one of the even-numbered ones, two, four, or six. It's just yes. a question of which one do you right. personally right. like the best. For me, it's six. I like, mm. I like mm. uh, Back Country. to the Future yep. yeah, yeah, that's great, though. No, better great than much. the others. But I love this one, and I love Wrath of Khan. Well, I think the reason this one was most, po- most uh, successful is not so much because it appealed to the fans, but because it had appealed beyond the fans. It had yes. a broad popular... Uh, uh, in fact, when they marketed it in other countries, they 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 downplayed the Star Trek aspect of it, <laughs> <laughs> which was a very interesting marketing. I saw the Australian poster for it, which was... It had Spock and Kirk, but it, was, it doesn't say Star Trek on it. <laughs> it's very funny. Yeah. So here's, since we're kind of talking meta-level success and so forth with these films, here are a few things to point out. Subsequent to Wrath of Khan, they keep trying to remake Wrath of Khan. Yes. It's like, we need need a big villain to serve as the nemesis of the captain, and, and they need to be equally matched, and we need to have a climactic space battle between them and stuff like that, and... In the J.J. Abrams era, they didn't then literally remake Khan. <laughs> they <Yes>. Literally. <laughs> and you don't need those things to have a great Star Trek film. Look at this one, the most exactly. successful one of all times until after the long drought. Right. No one, and now you can infer people did off screen, but no one dies in this movie. 
There mm-hmm. are no weapons fired in anger except for one failed attempt to stun somebody. Yep. Right. There is no villain. This is not set on the Enterprise, and there is no space battle. Right. So it breaks all of the rules, and it's awesome. You <laughs> do not need to try to keep remaking Wrath of Khan. Exactly. <laughs> what exactly. you tell a good story and people will go watch it? Right. Entertain Shocker. people. <laughs> so one of the important things about the success of The Voyage Home is it's we have the, this movie to thank for what came later, because it was this success that made Paramount green light the next generation, which comes out later. Right. I mean, it was in development, it was talk, but the success of this was the definitive yes. Okay, Star Trek is still alive. We can do a TV series in Star Trek, and this is where we're going to go with it. So. This movie, you know, thank you for for sa- essentially saves Star right. Trek for us uh, at this point. Um, one other, uh, a couple other behind the scenes bits. Michael Okuda, if you're not a real deep Trek fan, you might not know the name, but he is the guy who's really known for the look and feel of of next gen next and later. Gen. Yeah, yeah. He yep. did all of the on screen effects, like the, the the displays, and he's responsible for a lot of how of uh, Star Trek modern Star Trek looks. He wasn't a special effects artist. He was a design artist. And yes. so he right. designed the ship interiors. He's essentially the Johnny Ive of Star Trek. And <laughs> that, if you yeah. think about that, he's that inspiration. Uh, this was his first Star Trek. This is his first work on Star Trek. And Only then he would later time. go on to work for a next gen. Uh, another point, the, the character the, of Jillian Taylor, Dr. Jillian Taylor, uh, was originally supposed to be a guy. And played, it was supposed to be Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Who is a huge Star Trek fan? <laughs> that would have been interesting. Yeah, he uh, it was he was going to be an, a, an absent-minded professor, and he was going to where we've seen that before, and he it was yeah. going to be a whole thing with that. But uh, he he was they wrote the the script with him in mind, and then he passed on it to do Golden Child, which uh, <laughs> if you remember Golden Child, this was a mistake. <laughs> yeah, and he has subsequently acknowledged it was a, yeah, it was a mistake to take that part over this <laughs> big mistake. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun. So, and then another point that the whales were that they used were four foot animatronics that were so yeah. realistic they fooled whale scientists who were watching the movie. They got complaints uh, that people were swimming that they they filmed too close to real whales in in reality, mm. uh, and that they were interfering with them. And they had to point out, no, no, these were this is all special effects. Some of them were four foot models; others were not. I think there were there was some there there was a lot of stock footage in here, like the, yes. the the weather effects and stuff like that. A lot of that was stock footage that they reused. Right, the scene where the whales were swimming toward the Golden Gate Bridge at the end of the film was filmed on location and almost ended in disaster when a cable got snagged by a nuclear submarine and they got towed out to sea. That was I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. Oops. <laughs> also, the scene where they've crashed in the water. And it's meant mm-hmm. to be at the Golden Gate Bridge, but whenever we see the crew on the ship in yes. the rain, yeah, that's in the Paramount parking, parking lot. lot. <laughs> where, yes. And they they dug up the set that had been used for the parting of the Red Sea sequence in the Ten Commandments, and yep. they that's where they filmed that scene. Oh, that's wild! Yeah, yeah. I knew I knew it was a, I knew it was a tank scene with a green screen behind. I mean, that was pretty yeah. clear, but I didn't realize it was the same one as the Red Sea. That's or yeah, Red Sea. That's awesome. Yep. Uh, the aircraft carrier is not the Enterprise, which was not in port at the time. The nope. actual USS Enterprise, it was the USS Ranger, which was conventionally powered. But yeah, 
I like I like the I like the point on the the uh, memory alpha. It's like yeah, the the Navy would not have led them on the Enterprise to get to the anywhere near the nuclear reactor. Right? They would yeah, they would not be in the nuclear spaces. Uh, directed by Leonard Nimoy, his second outing as director in Star Trek. First time with Search for Swap, but this is the first time when he plays a major role when he's on screen a lot. So uh, yep. made a little more uh, difficult for him. But uh, two outings, two big successes. So the so this has really cemented his directing career. Uh, and I do want to note, on a personal note, the soundtrack for Voyage Home was my entry into modern jazz. Uh, mm. Okay. The, the the music of this, uh, I was I was 17 years old at the time, and I liked movie soundtracks, and I got this one, and I was taken by the music of oh what is the name the stuff that are uh the 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 that that jazz tune when they're walking when they're first walking through uh, San Francisco. Oh, the Waka Jawaka sound? Yes. It's really 1970s police show movie or TV yeah. show yes. uh, thing? Uh-huh. What is that? Oh, I had, I had, I didn't write it down because I knew off the top of my head what the name of the, the jazz group was. But, uh, but yes, there, there was, uh, that was my entry and I, uh, I became a big jazz fan because of that. So uh, I never I, thought of that as jazz. That's interesting. Yes, I, I I just I'm, I immediately thought, oh, Streets of San Francisco, Beretta, Kojak, all <laughs> yeah. those you know, <laughs> cop shows with the Waka Jawaka guitar. Yes, but, uh, the, well, I mean that's it's yeah, that's kind of a jazz uh, uh, sound with, that they used in those TV shows. By by the way, one more behind the scenes thing. This is the only Star Trek movie to have product placement. Yes. You see Valvoline on the side of the dump, the garbage truck. You've got Miklo beer they're drinking, and then they're in front of the big Pacific Bell Yellow Pages. Oh, you missed the biggest building. one of all, Father Corey. Uh, oh. Macintosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and with, Macintosh Apple with Scotty Apple in front of the computer. The, yeah, it's in front of the computer. That was the, the big classic one. Classic Mac Plus. Yeah. Oh, the Yellow Jackets. Computer. By the way, that? the, the that's the jazz band, the Yellow Jackets. Sorry, just ah. totally. And, but yes, you know, product placement. And, and any of any of us who are computer geeks, especially classic computer geeks, would love to have that Mac Plus today. But we'll talk. Yeah, um, definitely want to talk more about that scene when we get to it. Because yeah, that's a I, big thing. I remember using one of those back in the day, and I was the editor of a pro life newsletter, and I composed it on that, and I got so many little bomb icons. It was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get to that because we'll I want to talk we'll about it. <laughs> Uh, so let's let's talk about from the beginning of the movie. The movie picks up from the end of Search for Spock. This is a three movie arc essentially. Rathacon flows right into Search for Spock, which flows right into Voyage Home. It, it's it's sort of a it's a trilogy. Yep. Actually, let's start before the beginning because okay. we have the opening credits and we've got a dedication to the crew of the Challenger. Yes, right, which had with the first shuttle to blow up. I remember. When it blew up when I was in college, I remember coming into the student union and they had a big TV screen and there was that iconic image of the forking, you know, vapor trails where it had blown up. Um, And it's a really nice dedication where they say that they, you know, are sure that the legacy of the the, uh, Challenger crew will live on into the 23rd century. And then we get the opening credits. And in my notes, I have nice music. Mm-hmm. This is the this is a different Star Trek theme than mm-hmm. ones we've had before, and it sounds really nice. It is upbeat. It is energetic. It is triumphant. I would like to hear them reuse this. You know, they took the Jerry Goldsmith theme yep. from from uh, the motion picture and used it yep. for Next Gen, but I would like to hear this again in mm-hmm. some form. 
This is Leonard Rosenman did this one. Yeah. Yeah. One we thing then I'll have... Po- oh, go well, ahead. I want to point out before that is in international release, because Search for Spock did not do well internationally, they needed to add some stuff in before the beginning of the movie mm, in order to, to get people up to speed on what's going on. So they actually added a few scenes from uh, Search for Spock here. So uh, Sarek and Kirk in his apartment, and then um, you know the, the a couple of the events of them stealing the Enterprise, and then all the stuff on Genesis. There was a, the several scenes, and then they came to uh, that the dedication and opening credits. So it was very interesting that they did that. So kind of, kind of like they did before Search for Spock, where they had kind of a reminder of what happened in Wrath of Khan. Yes, the black and white that turned into the mm-hmm. color. Yes, yep. very. Yep. yes, that's true. Then in the credits, we see that Brock Peters is going to be playing Admiral Cartwright, and he'll be familiar yep. from Deep Space for Deep Space Nine fans because he was Benjamin Sisko's father mm-hmm. in that. We've got Robin Curtis back as Savick because Kirstie Alley only played her for the first movie she was in, yep. which was the Khan movie. Yep. Also, we've got John Shuck as a Klingon ambassador. And yes. John Shuck appears in a lot of makeup sci-fi roles, but people will remember him, who are Babylon 5 fans, as the second drawl, the guy mm-hmm. in the great machine on, uh, on Epsilon 3. He's the second youthful, very energetic and theatrical drawl. That's right. That's right. <laughs> John Shuck is one of those character actors who's done everything. Yeah. Talk about actors. You know, of course, Mark Leonard is back in as Sarek, but also you yep. have Jane Wyatt come back as Amanda. Very nice. Yeah, her first comeback. That yeah, was very nice to see her as well. And it's her final film role. Oh, hey. interesting. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay, very good. The, and just to kind of place in time, Search for Spock came out two years previously. So this movie came out, it was two years later uh, when released. So we have a giant probe approaching Earth again. <laughs> Yep. Shades of motion picture. This probe is much better than the last one. Yes, it's not a big uh, CGI cloud. And, and we don't spend two hours watching it on a screen with yes. nothing happening. Yes, yes. Uh, and then we have the USS Saratoga encountering the probe, which is the same name as the ship that Cisco is on at the beginning of Deep yep. Space Nine. But I think it's a different ship. They just reused yeah, this was the, This was the same model as the Reliant in Search for Spock. Yes, yeah. they, they're reason so, the model. So the probe is on its way to Earth. They meet it at the neutral zone, but the probe is on its way to Earth because it's searching for whales, which is yes. the whole theme of this movie. It's Star Trek IV, the search for whales. Right. So much so that that's how I think of it. I couldn't even initially remember the actual title. I just think <laughs> of it as the search for whales. And, and I want to know more about this whale probe. It's, well, I know it's been covered in expanded media novels, but I'd like to see them explore this more on screen. Because right. this is a fascinating corner of the Star Trek universe. Apparently, humpback whales are intelligent. They've had contact with extraterrestrials who are very whale-like in some respects. Yep. Let's learn more about that. Yep. That's, it's, it's, it's interesting that they don't get into it. They kind of start in the media res, like in the middle, you know, without explanation, and we, we don't get an explanation. I, I kind of like and, that they do that in this movie, that we don't spend a lot of time telling us why. Here, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Here, it's totally justified the way they do it, but I'd like, but it's so intriguing. I want to know more. It's like follow up on this on a TV show. Right? Yes, I, I can see that. The Federation, then we're at the Federation Council. They're replaying events from uh, Search for Spock and the Klingon Ambassador, played by uh, Peter Shuck. John Shuck. John Shuck. John Shuck. The, the Klingon Ambassador characterizes the events of the last two movies as 
Federation aggression perpetrated by a cabal led by Kirk against the Klingons. Um, and uh, we, we, what I find interesting is in both the last movie and this movie, David Marcus is the one who invented Genesis. There's no mention mm-hmm. of Carol Marcus at all uh, in mm-hmm. this. And I'm kind of curious why they made that decision, not even to mention her off, you know, mm. off screen. Presumably to keep the audience from being confused. Right. I mean, Kirk has just had his son die. Yeah. They need to mention that. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and he was the one that made Genesis unstable. Right. Uh, because he used protomatter. So he's the one to blame for the Genesis planet falling apart, which then justifies, although they don't go into it, it justifies the Klingon view of it as a weapon. So they, right. the, John Shuck refers to it as the Genesis torpedo. Yes. That then cloaks its destructive nature by temporarily creating new life. And so he wants Kirk extradited for trial in the Klingon Empire, which we will eventually see pay off in episode six. Yes. Also, I find it interesting the council is, as they're watching footage from Star Trek III, The Search for Spock, we're seeing things like the exterior of the Enterprise blowing up. And (laughs) and you're thinking, was there a satellite system in orbit around the Genesis planet that could capture that footage? Oh, come on. Ephraim Ephraim and Dot showed us that the Dot robot got ejected out into space. (laughs) Well, this is is my point, is I think, I, I, I assume that actually, even though they don't talk about them, there's a vast cloud of drones and probes around everything we see on Star Trek. Yeah, that <laughs> that's is just all the part of their from. attack. We're we're living in this cloud of objects recording everything. <laughs> so uh, Sarek intervenes on behalf of Kirk, to which the Klingon ambassador says, "Vulcans are well known as the intellectual puppets of the Federation," uh, which is uh, I thought was a funny Ooh, line. What a burn! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Federation president then says that uh, don't worry, we're going to put Kirk on trial. He's charged with violating regulations. At which uh, the ambassador nine nine yeah, regulations sputters regulations regulations. He's just said outraged at this idea, which I thought was. And then he says, <laughs> "There will shall be no peace as long as Kirk lives," uh, which is they uh, have referred to, and in fact, they've obliquely referred to the idea of a treaty for the first time, uh, a peace negotiations between the Federation and the Klingons, mm-hmm. which will also pay off in Episode Six. That's yep. right. Then we cut to Vulcan, where Kirk is doing his um, his uh, captain's log of the new ship, which they the Klingon Bird of Prey, which McCoy has named the HMS Bounty, which I thought was a nice touch Very by McCoy. Because why? I mean, we should explain it oh, for listeners who may not know. Right. The famous Mutiny on the Bounty, uh, which was a story about mutineers who had a captain that they overthrew, Captain Bly, uh, who was a, a tyrant that they overthrew and mutinied against. and. Uh, eventually created a colony in yeah. the South Pacific, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the bounty, my HMS bounty, the bounty has become a sort of entered popular culture as the idea of a mutineers. And so that's yeah. the ship. Kirk has agreed to return to Earth to face the music, and uh, which I thought was interesting because Vulcan's a Federation member, right? Can't they just be I, arrested I know. there? Yep. Why, why aren't they just extraditing him back to Earth? Right, uh, and the other, the rest of the crew also votes to go back too. So right. apparently, they had the option of staying on Vulcan and maybe fighting the extradition. It's possible that because this is so, we know Spock's family is really high up, right, yeah. in the Vulcan elite. His dad is an ambassador. 
to Pow. They at, at his at his marriage to Pow who officiated, and she's like. So famous, even Kirk knew about her and was agog that Spock's family was all of Vulcan to, wrapped to up to power officiate. Yeah, yeah. And then they just saved the ambassador's son using this mythico historical rite that had not been used in recorded history, and it worked. You know, mm-hmm. you could see the Vulcans saying, "We're we're giving these people diplomatic immunity, right?" And they're being allowed to fly themselves home in the bird of prey, yeah. which I think might be just a recognition of like. Look, it's Kirk. It's the Enterprise crew. Yes, they committed a crime, but you know they give them did the it last honor at least. Give them the right. last honor to at least turn themselves in versus going and arresting them. And they did it in service of a greater good. I think is a recognition of mm-hmm. uh, you know the it's a a technical violation of the law, but it wasn't self serving in that sense. Um, and they're taking the bird of prey, which is an intelligence gold mine. Of course, it's a yeah. enemy yep. warship. Um, with it, we have the scene of Spock's testing, uh, where which he- is great. Yes, I like the questions. I I love several things about this. The first one is the computer asks him the principal events on Earth in the year 1987, and he types his response, and we get this close-up of his (laughs) hand, so we can't see what he says. Yes. But if you freeze frame and look at uh, what's on the screens in response to the questions, it's computers cloned from carrots. (laughs) and New York Times last magazine to close doors. And (laughs) neither of those fits 1987, but 20-something, 2020-something, it kind of does. Also, as a philosophy major, my favorite question uh, has always been uh, Kiri Kinthaw's first law of metaphysics, nothing that is unreal exists. Yes, I also like that (laughs) T. Planahoff is the major of Vulcan philosophy. That was one of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, that I always remembered. Um, and then it ends with a question, how do you feel? Which uh, apparently was put in there by uh, Amanda, his mother, uh, because you're half human. You, the computer knows that, and Spock tries to say the question's irrelevant, but, you know, the feelings is something that Spock has to deal with. This is, I really like this interaction here between Spock and his mom, because Amanda is saying, as my son, you have feelings and they will surface. And Spock's response is, as you wish, since you deem them a value. Right. And that's such a great response. He's showing deference to his mother and being open to this, even though it doesn't make sense to him. He's still trusting his mom and willing to go along with this just because she values these things. And it's like, okay, I'm open to that. Right. And he tells her, you know, I have to, you know, since you deem them a value, I will, you know, I will explore them, but I can't wait here to find them. I have to go to Earth. And she says, because of friendship? And he says, no, I'm going to testify because I was there. <laughs> so mm-hmm. logic. Yeah. Uh, but he is going to go. And then she, there's this interesting interaction. She says, does the good of the many outweigh the good of the one? The, the central question of both Rathacon right. in Search for Spock and now here. And he says, I would accept that, that the good of the many outweighs the good of the one. And she says, then you stand here because of, she says a mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yep. the, everyone else put your good above theirs. Yes. Now, and this is very nice and moving and poetic, and it makes sense dramatically, and I accept it on that level. But as a philosopher, if I'm in Spock's position and she says, does the good of the many outweigh the good of the one, I would say you have to specify more variables. We can't use an overly simplistic utilitarian calculus. It's going to (laughs) depend on the nature of the respective goods (laughs) and harms in the cost-benefit calculus ratio involved in all of the relevant parties. But of course, that that wouldn't, one wouldn't fit in the movie, two wouldn't throw back to... Or Wrath of Khan. 
But is there a trolley involved? That's what I want to know. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we cut back, cut back to Saratoga, where uh, its uh, its power is being drained by the probe. Uh, so this is we've, we are establishing that the probe has this ability to drain power from from all their systems, and that Starfleet Federation is powerless against them. Uh, we 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 and it doesn't seem to be a weapon. It seems to be just a function of the ship it's of the probe itself so we, we, and, and it's, the ship is oblivious right. to anything humans do yes it's not trying to harm anybody it's just doing its thing right uh then we're back on the klingon ship which whose bridge has been reconfigured by since the last time by the way i just uh, mm-hmm. I mentioned that it's a little different to it, kirk does not sit on a dais above everybody they, they, they made it more human centric while it was being refitted on vulcan yes yep uh kirk says goodbye to savik uh, for why she was as much a part of this mutineer crew as anybody else well no she was no she was already there on well, the Grissom. she was on Vulcan, she was part but, of the she was part of the but survey, she was a witness she was part of the she, survey crew with 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 uh, kirk's son yes yeah but, but she was a witness to the events she was a witness and so there is a reason why she's staying but it didn't make it on screen yes the reason she's staying is Teenage Spock had Ponfar on the Genesis planet, and she cooperated with that Ponfar experience. Right. And in an, it may be unfilmed, but at least it's not included in the final draft. In an, in an either unfilmed or unincluded scene, she's staying on Vulcan because she's pregnant. Mm. Right. And they cut that. And so she stays behind for no obvious reason. It's like she's just ditching them. Right. 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 Uh, which the idea of is there a a child of Spock out there somewhere to show up in some future, uh, you know, episode of Picard perhaps? <laughs> so uh, McCoy <laughs> is uh worried that uh Spock isn't working in all thrusters. Uh, we get that, um, and uh, he he brings his concerns to Kirk, who kind of pushes him aside because he wants Kirk clearly wants Spock to be the old Spock. He's he's no yep. he's he's gonna be fine. It's he's don't worry about it. I have complete confidence in him. Uh, back at Earth, the probe is arriving. It's it the signal is oh, shutting oh, everything. Yep. Before that, as we're leaving Vulcan, Kirk orders the Klingon uh, bird of prey to one quarter impulse in an atmosphere. Oh, that's, <laughs> that, that's not the it, worst. It, that's not the worst and, thing in the and, atmosphere. So and, yeah, and it and it turns out that one quarter impulse is around a mile a minute. It's very slow because yes. we see this. Warbird take yeah. off and slowly taxi around and maybe go a few dozen or a hundred feet in a few seconds. So, so um, one quarter impulse, it turns out, is really, really slow. It's more engine power than speed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like maybe. saying, all, it's, it's, it's like, like saying, come you on, know. just say thrusters on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they oh, do that's, all that's kinds the, of that's stuff. That's not the worst yeah. thing they do in atmosphere, but we'll talk about that at the end of the movie. Yes, we will. We will. Uh, so back at Earth, uh, the the probe is arriving. Uh, we've seen things like uh, a transmission from the Yorktown that's uh, deploying a solar sail to try to get power to for the life support to keep them alive. Uh, they it, space dock, the big space station yep. there is is shutting down, uh, including with the Excelsior in space dock. Yes, yep. Uh, the probes uh, it then starts generating global rainstorms, covering the Earth in rain. Uh, we find out because the the uh, whales have not responded to its calls, uh, so so the things are getting worse. And, and so the probe can detect audio from whales of a specific species in the ocean, 
and is oblivious to all of the chaos it's causing with these other technological systems on the planet. I think it doesn't this care. This is a little improbable. Yeah, well, I think for some reason, for whatever reason, it doesn't care or it thinks it's an infestation that's that's harming the conditions that it wanted to have there for the whales, perhaps, maybe? I don't know. It just sees it us as really advanced apes, maybe. Yeah, well, that's the thing is it doesn't tell us any of this, so that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, Although McCoy- there is mention of you know problems in Leningrad, which of course oh, after yes, the fall I- of the Soviet Union is back to St. Petersburg. Right, right. That was a little anachronism there. That's uh, a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe in the future after World War III, it gets back to being Leningrad. So, yeah. <laughs> McCoy tries to bond <laughs> with Spock about their shared experience of life, death, and life again. And Spock- this was really nice. Yeah, I, I really liked the Kirk. Or the McCoy Spock interaction here. Um, mm-hmm. It's clear the two of them at this point are, even though there's they still have some playful barbing going on, they're really friends, and it's really mm-hmm. clear. And, although McCoy gets and, annoyed with Spock here, well, he does yeah. get annoyed with him. He's because he's trying to. He's asking about one of the great mysteries. He says, and the first thing he says, which is really nice, is I may have carried your soul, but I couldn't fill your shoes, and right. that's just yep. so generous and so nice of McCoy. And then he wants to know about death, you know, because Spock has been there and back. And Spock ducks the question. He says it would be impossible to discuss it without a common frame of reference. And at which point I would say, so you're saying there is survival because there would be no common frame of reference if we didn't survive death. You're, right. you're be, indicating that there is something on the other side. Well, to be fair, though, um, what. Spock got back was his memories, his Katra, from before he died. And this is what I would have said if I was the writer. Right. I I would have said, the only thing I experienced was what happened when my Katra was in your head. So we had exactly the same experience. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, it it, it kind of modern analogy is, you know, I've got a backup hard drive on my laptop and it, let's say it backs up five minutes before the laptop crashes. Well, I can't pull the data of the crash off the backup, backup hard drive. Because it doesn't know the laptop crashed. My computer can't right. tell me what the experience of crashing is like. <laughs> his, his, his Katra did have the ex- some experience in McCoy's head where he's yes. like talking as Spock through McCoy. So it's right. like, I dimly remember being in your quarters and talking to Kirk. And then I dimly remember you talking about something on the bridge. And, you know, he could cite all of the things McCoy did in persona Spock. Right. Yep. In, in that movie. But we do get the fun line where he says, forgive me, Doctor, I'm receiving a number of distress calls. And McCoy says, I don't doubt it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Whatever that uh, means. Yes, yes. <laughs> Sarek advises the Federation president, uh, I think you should transmit a planetary distress signal. Things are dire on Earth uh, and probably not getting going to get any better. And they essentially send a message that, um, you know, don't come here. Earth is right, lost. Yeah. Which is now, kind of scary. And, and they don't the way, ask for help and send a data packet about the problem they're facing, which is weird. Maybe well, they sent that on a different channel. I, I think they also, must have because uh, Uhura was able to pull up the sound of the, the probe, even though they're too far away to hear it themselves. We're talking about Starfleet Command, both uh, Commander Rand and Commander Chapel, Grace Lee Whitney and right. Rachel Barrett are in there, although they have absolutely no speaking what, scenes whatsoever. Right. They're, they're there. Yep. Major Barrett does have one line about we need to get medical supplies routed here or there. Yep. Right. Also, the Admiral says, because uh, the cloud cover is covering Earth, uh, says we can't survive within the sun without the sun. And I'm go- going, 
you're anticipating this is going to last for the centuries needed for all of the heat in the oceans to dissipate? That you're going to have global cooling for that long, really? Well, you'd probably kill off all the plant life on Earth uh, without the. If it's going to take. It's going to take months or years for stuff to happen. I mean, it's not like black as night up there. It's just cloud cover. And I, well, I wonder too, is, you know, what, what kind of power production does Starfleet have at that point on Earth? I would assume it's something based off of, you know, matter antimatter, but who knows? Right. Yeah. Right. It, yeah. The, the losing all power, that's the real problem because once you have no right. power in a technological society, that's when things break down into barbarism. Uh, so anyway, Spock guesses that the probe is not aimed at the human beings on Earth, but another life form and figures out that it's uh, humpback whales, but they're extinct by then, which is actually not true. Uh, and, and I love how um, how Spock is the only person in the Federation to be able to recognize the humpback signal, and he does it by ear, <laughs> and, th- and then he confirms it with a Klingon database. Well, no, they, they, they did say that they were tapped into the Federation database before they left Vulcan. Uh, I was going to say that. I'm going to guess they downloaded a Federation database. However, true to form, once they learn this, first thing Kirk's wanted wants to do is destroy the probe. Yeah, right. Yep. Okay. We shoot come it. in peace. Shoot to kill. Shoot it. to kill. Shoot <laughs> to kill. <laughs> but uh, Spock has a different idea. He says, let's go get some whales. McCoy. Uh, let's TARDIS this thing. McCoy realizes what he's suggesting. He says, now wait just a dang minute. <laughs> he says, <Yeah. laughs> like, he does not like this idea. This is worse than transporting. I love when Kirk goes down to engineering to tell Scotty to get ready for time warp. He says, we need to go find some humpbacks. And Scotty is humpbacked people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is the invent? What just imagine the kind of scenario that's, that Scotty is envisioning. <laughs> what kind of adventure are we on now? We're, we're going to go find Quasimodo. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. people. Well, I mean, again, if they're, if they've been extinct for hundreds of years, no one's even thought of humpback whales for a long time. So, uh, Spock uh, tells um, McCoy that he's had to program some of the time variables from memory, which McCoy responds with angels and ministers of grace defend us, which is Hamlet, Act 1, Scene 4. I mention that just because a friend of SQPN, Sean McCarney, uses that in his podcast, uh, Just a Catholic Dad. He uses that line, and so I like the fact that I I did not realize that was from Voyage Home. I didn't recognize the, the voice, but the angels and ministers of grace defend us. Uh, Kirk here says before they you know go into their time warp, may fortune favor the foolish, which is an interesting use of that that line because later Cisco mm-hmm. and Lorca will say may fortune favor the bold uh, right. later on in DS Nine in Discovery. So I just thought it was interesting. Uh, then we get that weird trippy time travel oh, sequence. <laughs> I know, and so this is 30 minutes into the film when we it's yep. a quarter of the runtime before yep. we even start going into the past, which is yep. a fascinating structure. Really, the middle hour of the movie is the 20th century. The yes. first 30 minutes and the last 30 minutes are the 23rd century. So it's a very interestingly structured movie and even though the thing that everybody remembers is the 20th century stuff with maybe a scene at the beginning and the end. Yep. It's really half of the movie is in the 23rd century. Half of the movie is in the 20th century. And then we have this totally hallucinogenic time travel trip <laughs> into the past that it's like, okay, McCoy could have gotten you there much easier. All I needed to do was go down to the lab and sense yeah. some DMT. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you could you could tell ILM Industrial Light and Magic was ha- was allowed to have some fun with that scene. Although 
to be fair, I mean, I, I think that was a computer-generated scene, which, again, for 1986, was yeah. pretty revolutionary. One of the things we also hear yeah. hear lines of dialogue, some of which have not yet been said in the film. So right. or some of which appear to be internal monologues like Uhura is heard saying, I never should have left Earth. And yeah. so it, it is as we're seeing the trippy stuff on the screen, we're getting these lines of dialogue that are significant. But some of them will come up later in the film and some of them are never said. Yep. So uh, judging by the pollution content of the atmosphere, they've arrived in the later half. <laughs> Half of the 20th century, which is a uh, yeah. uh, fun, and uh, they're flying over San Francisco. Oh, I just had a few notes before we shift to the San Francisco century. stuff. Okay. Um, so the humpback, this is an implausibility, but the humpback whales apparently have not had contact with the whale probe in human history. Right. But they're still speaking the same language because right. they're able to talk to the probe. Also, I want to know, and that's implausible because language should change for them over millennia. Mm -hmm. Also, once the crew of the ship has realized this is humpback whale speech, they should have told the Federation that, and then the Federation should have tried playing recordings that were made of humpback whales from before they well, were extinct. Didn't they address that? They said they would be just speaking they gibberish said that to they them. Could yeah, they no, said no, they no. could try that's, to that's, generate with computer. Yeah, that's com for computer generated, but, uh, and it would be gibberish. It would sound like the right voice, but it would be nonsense stuff. But cetacean biologists have been recording whales since the 20, in the 20th but, century, and they don't go extinct until the 21st. So they should have lots of archival recordings of actual whale song that is meaningful. And even but, if it's not what the probe is looking for, you could maybe at least delay the probe or start to make contact with the probe using those recordings. And they don't explore that at all. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, but to, to be to be fair, I mean, to make the counter argument, you know, it'd be like the probe is saying, hello, I'm here. And the whales are saying, I would like a cheeseburger and fries. Thanks. <laughs> They're singing. Can't yeah, races. Nonsensical. <laughs> I mean, it would, like, it, it would be recordings, but it would be recordings that could be nonsensical. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Probe, Agre so. ag ag agreed they would be out of context speech but it would be meaningful it could at least help make the probe think maybe they're down there and it's possible you and, know and they, so and, it would be be something that could be tried and and they do they do basically say in, in that message to starfleet command that we're you know this we're going back in time and this is why you know right so. right maybe yeah and if there were more time between when they left and when they came back they might have been trying that, I suppose, but but yeah. they they actually come back in the instant that they leave. You know, there's that yep. breaking of the window, which is actually a nice uh, uh, film device to kind yep. of mm -hmm. say this is the same moment. I, I, that was that was clever yep. of them. Uh, also, so, uh, structurally, yep. the fact they're about to save the world is what allows them to get away with the events of the previous movie. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is about putting them back on the Enterprise by the end of this movie, so we can have yep. more movies. So Scotty says the uh, Klingon dilithium crystals are decrystallizing and so uh, losing power. So Spock ha comes up with this idea to collect high energy particles from a naval ship nuclear reactors. Uh, so uh, well, well, uh, uh, check off use high energy photons. Yes, yep. uh, which are a real thing. Yes. Yep. Yep. They're not what powers an, an, a fission reactor, though. It's not right. high-energy photons. It's neutron radiation. 
But you'd find them in there, I suppose. That's one place you could find them. Some. This is a scientific issue with this. They must have got the idea from Queen What's-Her-Name from the short treks. Yeah, (laughs) right, right. So uh, they, uh, Sulu, Scotty, and McCoy, meanwhile, are going to be tasked with building the whale tanks while uh, Spock and Kirk go find the whales. Uh, So we've got, got, we're dividing the crew up into teams, and each team has something to do. And this is a classic issue with Star Trek because yeah. there's a good bit of resentment in the among the actors that only three of them consistently get anything to do, right. and and the others sometimes like by the time of uh, Star Trek Generation, some of them said, "There's nothing here for my character to do. I'm not even going to appear in this movie, even though they were right. invited." And this is the most effective movie. Uh, in terms of, I think, of giving everybody something meaningful to do that advances right. the plot. Yep. Uhura has kind of maybe the least, but even she gets stuff to do. Although yeah. some of it is like, she's receiving whale song from orbit? How? Do you have a, a microphone down in the ocean? Sensors. Same, same way, <laughs> same way so. the, uh, same way the uh, probe does. Star Trek, Star Trek sensors yeah. are like the Doctor's sonic screwdriver. They they just do whatever you need the plot to do. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so they 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 land in Golden Gate Park, which, by the way, the real Golden Gate Park is huge. It's not like a like a like yeah. a, like you think a, a little city park. It is like a forest in the middle of a city. So it's yeah. it's plausible that you could be somewhere where you're not in a high traffic area. Although they uh, they're in the middle of a playing field. Uh, apparently, nobody uses it. And the Klingon cloak makes the material of the ship itself invisible. It's not the shields around it. This is a little bit different from what we've seen of cloak, you know, cloaking devices yeah. in the past. But, so they know. flatten a garbage can when they land, which is really cool. And you can see the yep. garbage can under the impression of the bird of prey's yes. foot in the ground. And that scares the garbage men off. And these garbage <laughs> men are much, these San Francisco garbage men, are much less intimidating and ominous than the San Francisco garbage men in the 1978 invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll take your word for that one. Uh, it, it is funny. I like to think, uh, did you see that? No, I didn't, and you didn't either, <laughs> as, yeah. they, as they write off. Um, uh, I did think funny later on when we do see the garbage can smash on the ground under the impression of the, we see the uh, grass waving in the wind under the foot. Oh, so, oh that's uh, funny. A little bit. A little, the, the detail they would not miss today. Uh, Kirk gives the gives uh that that line as they come out of it uh the cl- the the classic line everybody remember where we parked which is yeah uh, a great uh, line great line they walk into San Francisco and they're crossing the they walk in front of the traffic on the street and the guy curses at him and Kirk gives the double dumb bleep on you line back and <laughs> a little blue humor in in uh, yeah the, the, uh, the cars were were definitely of their time it was kind of fun to see all the old you know early to fun. mid mid eighties cars yep. Uh, they're still using money in the 20th century too. So actually, the the we can say it the double dumbass on you line <laughs> is is funny in that Kirk is inappropriately using cursing. He doesn't really know how 20th century insults work, right? And he's trying to roll with it. So there's an element of humor there, but also, and they address this later in the film explicitly. This is the first time we've had any kind of cursing. Yep. On Star Trek. Right. And they they justify it by saying, we're in the 20th century. This is how everybody talks. We're trying to fit in. But Spock yep. calls Kirk out on his use of colorful metaphors. Yeah. 
and they have this conversation about it on the bus. And so this is kind of, I think, better handled. They 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 do really kind of dive in and have a good bit of this, but it's all pretty low level stuff. Nobody yeah. drops the f bomb, right? And it comes across as a much more believable way to deal with the issue of uh, taboo language on Star Trek than what we get in Discovery, oh, where yes. they just drop the F-bomb out of nowhere. For absolutely right. no reason no... whatsoever, just so that they can say, look at how edgy we are because we did this. Yeah. But here it makes, if they're going to do it, which they didn't have to, they could have left all that out. But if they're going to do it, they did it better here than they oh, yeah. did in Discovery. Right. And I, they even get some additional humor value out of it because Kirk is explaining to Spock on the bus, I'm doing it because I'm trying to fit in. This is how everybody talks. You see it in all the literature of the time. And Spock says, like who? And he says, well, Jacqueline Suzanne and Harold Robbins, who were well. And, and Spock says, ah, the, the giants, giants. <laughs> which is hilarious because and people today may not know this as much, but Jacqueline Suzanne and Harold Robbins were astoundingly successful authors in the mid and late 20th century who oh, yeah. were known for writing trashy books. Yes. And so there's no way they would be considered giants. Literary giants. Day. Most, <laughs> most people giants. today have never heard of them. Yeah. And we're only 40 <laughs> years away, 35 years apart from that. Right. Yeah, but right. I, I love the irony of in the 23rd century, they're considered 20th century Shakespeare's, even though they're, today they're known for just <laughs> writing popular trashy novels. Right. And, and uh, speaking of the colorful language, we're going to get Spock using some of it uh, where badly you know they're not the hell your whales and, and things like that and yeah. uh yeah and, and, and the the great one what is where he turns to kirk and says are you sure this, this isn't a time for a, a colorful metaphor which is yeah. a great yeah. line <laughs> uh, so uh i mentioned kirk notices that they're still using money in the 20th century which again oh. he and spock and mccoy have been in the 20th century before yeah, yeah. the guardian at the edge of forever uh, well, but I I can forgive him that, but I always assume he. I mean, and when this movie came out, I assume because we have this, and then when they're buying pizza, yeah. he, and Jillian says to him, "You don't use money," and he says, "We don't." All that means in context, or all it needs to mean, is we don't carry cash. Yes, because yeah. I don't and carry they cash. They took it. They <laughs> took it in this ridiculous thing that his in this ridiculous direction of they literally have no money. I, which I wonder it, though is if this totally if the, unbelievable. If this was a Roddenberry. Because of course that was his big thing for TNG right. was they didn't have cash in the in the you know the twenty fourth century yeah yeah uh, so uh, in order to get some money Kirk sells his spectacles that McCoy gave him for his birthday these are apparently eighteenth century antiques that he was toting around on his face which in yeah. the twenty fourth century would have been priceless uh, museum pieces it, it, uh, even today they didn't would have be money so <laughs> yeah I I love we've got a predestination paradox here because. Spock says, weren't those a birthday present from Dr. McCoy? And Kirk says, and the beauty is they will be again. So <laughs> yeah. the implication is it's the same pair of glasses. Nobody ever manufactured these. Yeah, yes. <laughs> and uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, that was, a, that was a good line. And, well, uh, it, I'll give you $100 for them. Is that a lot? <laughs> and the yeah. guy kind of strikes, goes, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the, then Spock has this thing where he's going to find the whales using vectoring and a bus map, uh, you know, the bus ad. and. Uh, instead, uh, uh, they, uh, they, they, Kirk sees the ad on the bus for George and Gracie at the Cetacean Institute, and uh, they get and on the we bus. Should, we should explain George and Gracie for people who may not be aware, because sure. a lot of, lot of younger people may not know who they are. Um, George Burns and Gracie Allen were a pair of mid-20th century comedians 
who right. were very yep. famous. They they had a show together, the George Burns show, and they were uh Gracie was the kooky, played the kooky character, George Burns was the straight man. Yep. And at the end of every show They're also married, by the way. Yeah. Right. They were married. And at the end of every show, George would tell Gracie to say goodnight, Gracie, meaning to the audience, and she'd say, Good night, Gracie. <laughs> right, yep. right. Classic line. Uh, and so the whales are named after George and Gracie. Uh, and so they get on the bus, and then they have to walk off the bus, and, the, and Spock says, what does this mean, exact change? Which is a, a little uh, historical anachronism there. Uh, then we have uh, Spock, McCoy, and Sulu walking through Chinatown. Now, originally, we talk about versions of the movie that weren't made. Originally, this was supposed to be a scene where Sulu encounters his ancestor, uh, like mm. his great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, here. And they were uh, going to film the scene, but the child actor who was supposed to be, play it got so nervous that they ended up not filming it which is a shame mm, yeah but uh because his mom was on the set watching and apparently she was a tiger mom or something <laughs> but there's the implication yeah. so they do they find uh they they find the 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 was it um not fiberglass uh plexiglass yep. uh by looking up in the pacific bell yellow pages which for those of you under the age of about 30 that was a big book that everybody who had a telephone used to get <laughs> that list that was basically Google for the 20th century yep. in paper for phone form. numbers. For phone yeah. numbers, yes. Um, so Scotty and McCoy uh, are in the uh, factory and they, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think if, I've, if I'm jumping ahead here, but they, the, he says normally well, you, we'd co convert the tanks using transparent aluminum, but we don't have that. And, uh, so they you have this the great scene this, where he's with the computer, right? I'm mm -hmm. trying to think of. A, I think this is where this happens. So yeah, they they go to this factory. They talk with the plant manager. He's pretending to be a professor from Scotland, and McCoy is his assistant. And they uh, he he's tries he wants to trade for the plexiglass that they'll need. This really thick plexiglass, and he says, "Uh, well, what if I gave you the formula for transparent aluminum?" And he uses his, he has this great scene with the Macintosh where he sits down and says, computer, and it doesn't respond. And he says, just use the, and he, he uses the mouse. McCoy gives him the mouse and he tries talking into the mouse. Yes. That's right. That's right. And he says, just use the keyboard. A keyboard. How quaint. And then he, he does the, the James Dewan does this random typing, which with manipulates two fingers the, and, and way too few keystrokes to generate <laughs> yep. what he's generating on the screen. In a graphical interface, by the way. Yeah, and on then, a Mac yeah. Plus, which wasn't known for its keyboard friendliness. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but this was the, the what I was talking about before, the, the Mac. I mean, this was this was the moment when Mac really hit the popular consciousness. This is 1986, so a couple years in. But uh, people loved this. It, it, it was a, a great scene. Um, and the funny thing is, is to a lot of this scene inspired so much computer technology in the future. This people have been trying to develop these voice interfaces with computers, yep. partly because of this, and of all previous Star Trek stuff, of course, but partly because of this. Uh, although Siri still isn't quite there yet. <laughs> we, yeah, and we now have transparent aluminum. It yes. really exists. Exactly. Yes, it uh, and they call it Alon, but it's yeah, Al inspired by this movie. Yeah, that's that's the thing I think is amazing is. We have transparent aluminum because someone said, huh, I wonder if we could do that because I saw this in a movie. Or, or uh, because, because Scotty actually did come back in, in time and give it to this guy, and this guy is the guy ooh. who actually invented it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and meanwhile, uh, Sulu is hanging around at the outside with the guy with the Huey helicopter learning uh, how to fly it, uh, apparently flying something like it in his academy days. Uh, 
what mm-hmm. possibly could have been flying in at the Starfleet uh, Academy? Shuttlecraft are exactly we, like flying a helicopter, don't you know? Uh, but but we also know that Sulu is like a historical geek. I mean, he's yeah. into historical weapons. He, I would assume he's into historical aircraft, too. Right. That's true. That's true. Uh, well, who knows? It, maybe maybe uh, for, you know, navigators, they have them fly, you know, like replicas of historic aircraft to understand where they are now <laughs> based on where they've been. I don't know. That's I'm making true. that up. Well, and, and there are groups uh, that are, you know, dedicated to historic aviation, like the Confederate Air Force, oh, yeah. where they right. fly uh, historical planes that are not in service anymore. That's yeah. true. This is true. That's true. Uh, so we'll have a great scene of him flying the plexiglass to the bird of prey. Uh, Meanwhile, this is the great scene. This is this is the class, have, this is what everybody thinks of for for Voyage yeah. Home is this scene right here. We have Chekhov, who's Russian with this really bad Russian accent, Walter Koenig's terrible Russian accent, walking around asking people for directions to the naval base in Alameda, which for the is nuclear, where, where they nuclear have the nuclear vessels. Yeah. <laughs> and it, like it ta- they ask the cop, and the cop just kind of stares at him like, "You're Russian and asking me like what is like." And in fact, it turns it's, out... The cop says nothing. Yes. yes. Nobody Just says anything him. at first. In, in fact, the, when they filmed the scene, nobody was supposed to respond. None of the extras was supposed to answer them. But the one actress who did was so funny that they kept it in. Like, she yeah. totally blew it. And they had to get her into the union and all this other stuff because she, yeah. wasn't, she was an extra. Well, but and I, 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 I actually believe... Yeah. I thought I read something once where the cop was actually like a police officer provided by the san francisco pd as right. security and they just walked right up to him ad libbed it oh really and so that's, that's why a- and he was told you know if something like this happens you just don't talk and that's why he's standing there just blank faced yeah it <laughs> really really doesn't make any sense but it makes for a nice scene uh popular mechanics has 50 greatest moments of science fiction movies and this is number 50 oh wow the list, yeah the, the nuclear the nuclear vessels nuclear scene. vessels and and the woman they're they're walking up to all the extras saying you know can you tell us where the naval base in Alameda is and, and no one's answering and finally the one woman when she's asked where the nuclear vessel she says oh yeah they're uh they're at the naval base in Alameda and it's like i i know this i know where is Alameda yeah. <laughs> but she's walked off by that point yeah that's what i just said Alameda <laughs> where is Alameda uh so then we have uh Kirk and McCoy, uh, Kirk and sorry, Spock on the uh, bus. This that scene going across the Golden Gate Bridge to Sausalito, where the Cetacean Institute is, and they meet the punk rock kid uh, in the punk rock gear who plays the song "I Hate You" on the on the boom on the boom blaster, which, which the actor wrote. Well, because, let me mm-hmm. yeah, let me tell you about the 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 guy who plays the the the, the punk rocker. Uh, he was Leonard Nimoy's assistant on the movie. Uh, he was. Oh, and, that's funny. And, he begged to be to be put in this scene because he was a punk rock fan, and so when he finally showed up to the set in this costume, complete with dog collar, fake nose piercings, and leopard print Converse sneakers, one of the first people he bumped into was DeForest Kelly, who's, <laughs> and he says this is a quote: "He looks me up and down real slowly, and with that kind of southern laconic drawl, he just says, nice shoes.'" Walks <laughs> 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 away. I thought, that is so awesome. Uh, so his name is Kirk Thatcher, which is awesome. It's a Star Trek name. He also yep. wrote the lyrics to the song "I Hate You," and he actually went out to have a very good career in Hollywood in the behind the scenes, doing you know directing and that sort of stuff. So a lot of fun there. I I love that scene. Uh, another one of those scenes that everyone remembers from the movie. Yeah. 
uh, where basically Spock- he's playing it. He's a jerk. He's playing his boombox way too loud. He won't turn it off. He even turns it up. And so yep. Spock finally neck pinches him and everyone on the bus applauds. Yes. Yep. Uh, by the way, did you see the guy on the bus reading Omni magazine? Another. Yes, I did. Something oh, out I of the to 80s. Read Omni magazine. <laughs> yes. Uh, another 80s thing there. Uh, at the Cetacean Institute. So Cetacean is the fancy word for whales and whale-like creatures. Whales. Right. Dolphins, Dolphins stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mammals in the sea. Um, there's a, a tour that uh, uh, Kirk and Spock go on led by Dr. Jillian Taylor. And do you see the nuns on the tour? The nuns yeah. On the tour? Because uh, every film in the in this period had to have nuns or a priest in the background somewhere. <laughs> for some reason. It, it's now, so this funny. is getting into church politics, but there were more nuns in habit in movies than there were in real life at this point. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So. Let's talk about, they, they give us the spiel about whales and whale hunting and all this sort of thing. Now, at the, at the time, there was a moratorium on whaling that had been enacted that year, 1986. Um, but there were a handful well, of countries that didn't sign on. Yeah, it's like, whoa, they're totally whale shaming Russia and Japan here. Yeah. Yep. Today, very few humpbacks are actually hunted, and they're not even considered threatened anymore. They're, they're classified they're as... They're recovering yeah, they're, quite, quite well, actually. Right, they're under the least concern conservation status, is, is how it's listed. So it's kind of interesting. Maybe this movie had some effect on that. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting to think about that. Uh, but in any case, these or, or maybe another uh, movie from this time period about whales, the horror movie Orca. Um, <laughs> in uh, in in this movie, Jillian tells about how the whaling nations that are unnamed, but she's thinking of like Russia, Japan, and Norway, yep, and Iceland that they will even harvest female whales with calves, with unborn mm-hmm. calves. Right. And that happens in the movie Orca, and Daddy Orca gets revenge on the humans <laughs> who did it. So, uh, I that you were may say, have been part of it, too. I thought you were going to say the Bill Clinton story called Free Willy, but uh, that might be something else. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> totally different. <laughs> so, so we are told that the Cetacean Institute has the largest saltwater tank in the world, and uh, Kirk says, this is perfect. We've got two whales right here, ready for the taking. We'll take him from here. Um, of course, we find out that they're going to be let go into the ocean right away because timing uh, and yep. plot. And uh, Jillian says, oh, the whales, they, they go inside and they're looking through the glass. Oh, the whales sing. We don't know why they sing. And then the lady gives that, that classic line, maybe they're singing to that man in there. And we see Spock yeah. swimming in the tank, doing a mind meld with the whale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then uh, we have Spock, who doesn't have the hang of the the knack of the colorful metaphors. Uh, they are not the hell your whales. Uh, yeah. Afterwards, uh, Kirk explains to Jillian that Spock was in, and this is a nice attempt to knit their story into real history. He says yep. that Spock was in the free speech movement at Berkeley in the '60s, but he did too much LDS, ma- <laughs> thus making the day of every Mormon in the theater audience. <laughs> yes, that's right. He's a too many Latter Day Saints. Um, yeah. And then later on, when Jillian is with the, you know, they kick Kirk and, and Spock out. Uh, they actually, in reality, would be arrested, but, you know, they were kicked out. And uh, Jillian's talking to the Institute's director. She's the deputy director of the Institute. And uh, he says, you know, I don't, you know, we have to let him go. But after all, they're only whales, they're not people. And she says, I don't know about you, but my compassion for someone is not limited to my estimate of their intelligence. And that's sort of an ironic line, given the fact that they're intelligent enough that an alien species is interested in them and not human beings so there's a little bit of irony there on the other hand i'm like so you have enormous empathy for microbes (laughs) right for all creatures she doesn't step on any bugs 
Yeah. Uh, Chekhov and Uhura, meanwhile, have found the Enterprise, the aircraft carrier Enterprise. And, Which uh, is awesome. It's awesome. Even yes. though it's not the real Enterprise, it's still awesome. It's, it's awesome is that cool. they find it. Yes. It is that, I remember like seeing that and being, this is cool. Because remember, when, I, when we saw this in the theaters, there was no Enterprise anymore. The, the, the Starship Enterprise was gone, and yep. this was a real nice connection to it. You have to have an Enterprise in a Star Trek movie, and so we thought this was our Enterprise. Little did we know. So uh, Jillian sees Kirk and Spock walking uh, away from Sausalito. They're actually in the Marina District of San Francisco. They're not going yep. to San Francisco. They're in San Francisco, but small point. Uh, she calls him Robin Hood and Friar Tuck, which I thought was a nice line because Spock's in the uh, the bathrobe. Robe. Yep. <laughs> and uh, let me give you a ride back. And uh, Spock, uh, we have that thing where is oh, Spock did too much LDS. And she says, oh, I have a photographic memory. I see words. Jimmy? Uh, photographic well, memories? so you, that's actually <laughs> synesthesia, but... Um, but I mean, you can, uh, there are partially eidetic memories, but nothing is going to give you very few people have literal total recall. Right. (laughs) This is kind of a myth. Yes. Yep. Uh, but so, but Spock does drop that Gracie is pregnant, which causes her to slam on the brakes. How do you know that? Nobody knows that. Gracie does. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's an awesome line. (laughs) That is good. Uh, Uh, Also, like as she's dropping him off, cause she and Kirk are going to go get dinner Yes, and Kirk's going to do his Kirk thing. uh, (laughs) It, but uh, they're dropping Spock off in the park, and she, uh, Jillian says, you sure you won't change your mind? And he looks at her and says, is there something wrong with the one I have? <laughs> right. <laughs> Spock being obtusely literal. Uh, this is actually where we have the scene of uh, Spock, uh, uh, Scotty and McCoy and Sulu at the factory. Uh, there, I, didn't, I failed to point out that McCoy kind of pulls him aside after he makes that transparent aluminum formula on the Mac. He says, uh, are you sure we should be altering the future uh, by giving him this formula? He goes, how do you know he didn't invent the thing? And McCoy yep. kind of gets this conspiratorial look like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. So maybe maybe that's that's what it is. He he got it. That's my reference about sp- this is the guy that off made media the he is. Elon. Yes. Yes. Uh, so, yes, we drop off Spock to wander in the park while they go to dinner. And uh, Kirk has d- dinner with her. And interesting here, Kirk's charms his you know his uh, uh romantic charms do not work on jillian there is no really. sense of of uh romantic attraction between the two of them she's she's really? more interested in what is he doing there why does he know what why do they know what they know what's going on yeah i don't feel like there was ever any like i think kirk tries to get some going but i don't feel like she's buying it no. Yeah, Kirk is definitely trying to get stuff going, but she, I mean, not necessarily to go all the way with her, but no, to right. at least get on her good side. <clears throat> and she is a tough customer yes. in that regard. She stays focused. I think she likes Kirk. Otherwise, she wouldn't be wasting her time with him. Right. But, I think she's fascinated. Um, I, I think the way I would put it is fascinated by him. Yeah. Yeah. We also have some nice stuff. At one point, his communicator beeps, and she says, you have a pocket pager, <laughs> pocket which pager. at the time was like, oh, advanced tech, and now it's like the, lame. And do you also yeah. bash rocks together? Yeah. <laughs> well, and yeah, today she says it's your it. cell phone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then and then Kirk picks it up and says, I told, I told you never to call me, which is a classic <laughs> line from television right. that would get used all the time in this period. And then the two of them have this passive-aggressive chuckling contest where they're looking at each other, and there's kind of this standoff, and they're just kind of going, (laughs) (laughs) and they're passive-aggressively chuckling at each other to avoid talking. But 
Finally, Kirk tells her, I'm from the late 23rd century on your calendar. And this is the first definite establishment of when Star Trek is set. Oh, right. Because they were always ambiguous about it in the original series. There are lines in individual episodes that could suggest anywhere between 200 and 800 years in the future. And so this is the first time they lock it down to a particular century and even a part of a century. They're 300 years ahead of us. And uh, they have this discussion where Kirk is trying to convince her, tell me the the frequency of the transmitters that you're going to put on the whales. When are th- they're going right away, we're told. They're they're going to be flown out in a special 747 um, to, you know, tomorrow or something like that. And it's like noon uh, the next day, yeah. Yeah, and uh, she's like, she's intrigued. She doesn't really believe him, but where would you take them if you could? And yeah, he tells her he's from the 23rd century. Uh, and she said, well, first she says, let me guess, you're from outer space. And he says, no, I only work from out- in outer space. I'm from Iowa, which is a, yeah. a, a nice line. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and so then that when she tells him they're going to go at noon tomorrow, we have to go right away. And uh, they get up to leave with the, the waiter brings the uh, the uh, pizza, pizza to them. Yep. And she says, uh, we're going to take that to go. Let me guess, they don't have money in the 20th century. And Kirk says, well, they don't. And so she has to pay for dinner. Uh, yeah, they also apparently don't have pizza in the 23rd century because Kirk has no idea how to hold a pizza box. When we <laughs> yeah. see him back at the park, he's holding it basically vertically. And it's like, yep. that pizza is going to fall apart in there and you're going to have cheese all over the lid of your box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wonder if Shatner did that on purpose because, like, you know, he, he would know. Uh, so on board the Enterprise in the nuclear reactor, Chekhov and Uhura collect their particles. Um, and this makes no sense because they're they've got shield so high energy photons okay right. yeah that's a thing but you know what blocks high energy photons shielding and this this reactor is covered in shielding now number 1 its purpose is not to generate high energy photons it's to generate neutrons that yep. will then heat the water in and drive a steam turbine but Okay, maybe there are some high-energy photons that will be released as part of this process, but they're not going to make it through the shielding because if they did in appreciable numbers, people would be dying. Yeah. Maybe the device low, you know, uh, changes the shielding in one location to well, absorb. The, the little uh, phas- <laughs> phaser drill that drilled into the, sh- like a little pinprick into the shielding. Or yeah, I don't, transports I don't them or changes the molecular structure. You guys can headcanon it. I even have <laughs> in my notes. Maybe it reaches through the shielding somehow, but they didn't set any of this up. They just threw a science term into the script, and yep. they didn't think about how this would really work. In, in other words, a typical Star Trek episode. Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah. So somehow the device they're using does cause a power drain in the system. It, it causes the which reaction it, to it, go down. Which it wouldn't, because if they're collecting high-energy photons... Those are a byproduct of the neutron release mm-hmm. power system. Maybe it's a, a, a byproduct of whatever device they're using. Well, your head cannon again. <laughs> this is not made. This is not made clear in the script. It is not. It is not right. But it is. A, it is used to uh, to make a, a high drama. Uh, Scotty can only beam a Uhura out at first because uh, the Klingon power. powers are is down. They're, the batteries are drained, and they don't have uh, a, a spare backup battery. So. Chekhov, of course, is the one who is captured and interrogated. The Russian, not uh, uh, Uhura. And, uh, they, the interrogation is funny. You know, what are you doing here? Where are you from? Uh, Starfleet. You know, he's got the Starfleet ID on him. 
and he tries to stun them, but the phaser malfunctions, and so we get this this wonderful chase through the ship, uh, which with real marines, with, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Them. A lot of, and, a lot of the with, navy crew were, were real navy and marines. Yeah, and with Russian music. Yes, yes, the playing Russian in the background, <laughs> which is nice as Chekhov is running. And this is remember, folks, this is the Cold War. Yes, this is the 1980s. Yeah. We were the, the Soviet Union was a thing. I mean, this the was idea, towards we, the end yeah. towards the end of the Cold War, but we didn't know that at the time. It was, this right. was actually really one of the, the hotter height. periods of the Cold War. Yeah. Right. We had near misses with nuclear war in the 80s. And so this was a really high drama time. And dropping Chekhov into this, 20th, into this situation is great. Right. Because he was always a symbol of future reconciliation, but we're unreconciled at this point. <laughs> yep. Right. And so uh, you have Chekhov is caught. He's carrying Starfleet ID. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't just try to lie his way out of this. Also, his knowledge of English suddenly fails him as he starts taking things overly literally, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> even though he's been talking to English speakers all of his career in Starfleet. This is a problem in Star Trek in general, by the way. Whenever they travel back in time, they suddenly become very literal about the way they talk and very right. dumb about idioms and things like that. I have to say, this is a, one of my criticisms for time travel in Star Trek. Uh, the yeah. Voyager will do this, too. We we also have the the crewmen who are interrogating him. One of them says, "What do you think?" And the other one says, "He's a Rusky." And the uh, and the first one says, "I know, but he's some kind of Rusky retard." And it's like, "Whoa, man! Double woke, <laughs> double woke policy offenses. You can't yes. call someone either a Rusky or a retard now." I think actually Rusky is now acceptable because of what's in the news. But uh, but retard <laughs> yeah. is what is now the R word. That is a like, and I apologize for anyone if you feel offended by it, but. That is a word that was used commonly uh, throughout the yes. 80s and 90s and into the 2000s that has suddenly become a word that you cannot use uh, at all for in any, any circumstance play company. for any reason. Yes. Uh, you know, so even yeah, if you talk is, about it, retarding an engine, people will freak out. Well, that's an well, actual thing. You're retarding the power performance of the engine, the timing of right. the engine. It's a perfectly useful word in many contexts. I would now you obviously calling someone that is is can be cruel. It's offensive. So, but don't be cruel to people. It it wasn't used I mean, I have no memory of it being used for people who actually suffered from mental disabilities. You wouldn't use it to their face. Yeah. Right. It was what it was used for was were people who were inappropriately yeah. acting foolishly. Yes. Yes. Exactly. So it, you know, it it would be it's a it's a movie of its time. And so that's we accept yeah. it as 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 it is. So we have this chase through the ship and uh Chekhov gets to the edge of the, the deck. Also, his phaser doesn't work, he thinks, because of radiation on the ship. And it's like, no, there is no appreciable radiation. The, the number of, of the amount of radiation you get on a ship has to be within human safety limits. There is yeah, right. no way that would interfere with a phaser. Right. That's yeah, because, right. I mean, phasers will work on planets with high natural radiation. But suddenly, right. this man-made "quote-unquote" radiation well, on the reactor ship—it's a Klingon phaser. To be to be to be fair, and maybe it's just shoddy. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, they could have, they could have just completely taken that whole idea out. Just you know, he shoots it, and it goes. I must have dropped it. Yeah, you know, or like oh, the battery's it. drained. Yeah, something. Yeah. Anyway, he falls off the edge of the the deck to the wharf below, and uh, he's he's injured. And oh, uh, you know, the, we are, this fun little chase ends in this you know dramatic moment. Uh, meanwhile, Jillian shows up the next day at the Cetacean Institute, and the whales are already gone. Uh, 
Well, we did it with while you were while you were out last night, so we thought it would be easier for you, Jillian, patronizing Pat on the head. And she she gives him a well deserved slap in the face, which was uh, I'm glad that's it's one way to quit. I- which according to what I read, she actually connected in real life. She actually slapped <laughs> the hard. actor, and he was yeah. not happy about it. Yeah, he looked he looked stunned. But uh, that's one way to quit your job. So uh, that's it. it was interesting. I mean, if, thankfully she doesn't have to go back, as we'll find out. So she decides to go to Kirk. That's her last hope to save the whales because she assumes that once the whales are out in the open ocean, we didn't say this before, is they're going to be hunted and killed. That's just the assumption yeah. is is they're not. And she's saved. right about that. This right. is which is what we're going to see in a few minutes. Right. Uh, so then we have uh, Sulu flying the Huey over the over Golden Gate Park with the plexiglass. She shows up there and she sees him lowering the plexiglass into the invisible ship and uh, Scotty yelling, half of Scotty yelling down inside, Admiral, we've got a problem. By by the way, Sulu doesn't have, and part of it's because his ancestor scene got cut. Yes. But he doesn't have that much to do in this movie and his job of bringing the aluminum with the helicopter is pretty minimal. But there is a funny moment where as he's flying, we get a close-up of him through the windscreen as he accidentally turns on a windshield wiper and doesn't know what to do. (laughs) But if you look closely, the windshield wiper blade was broken, and so a crewman had to manually move it. And if you look closely, you can see the finger of the film crewman (laughs) moving the blade back and forth. That made it into the theatrical cut. That's That's awesome. So Kirk beams uh, Jillian aboard the, the Bird of Prey, and his first words are to her, Hello, Alice. Welcome to Wonderland, which is a, a nice line. Um, and uh, they have, they, he tells her we can't leave because we're have got we a ship missing a crewman. And uh, it says they found Chekhov, that he's in the hospital. And Spock says, well, we have to help him. Even though it's not the logical thing to do, it's the human thing to do. So Spock has gotten in touch with his human side. And even though power is fully restored, they haven't thought of beaming him out. Apparently, yes. Uh, so, well, maybe they can't. They've located him by you know reports, but they can't locate his his life signs because there's another yeah, communicator yeah. on. Because when, okay, when they go to the, when they go to the hospital, they have to actually go look at the charts and figure out where he's at. Right. So it's Kirk, McCoy, and Jillian as their local tour guide. Uh, they go to the hospital. They're dressed in scrubs. Uh, McCoy encounters the woman in the in the hallway. What are you in here for? I'm waiting for dialysis, uh, kidney failure. And he gives her pills to uh, to to. To, to, and says, call me in the morning. And then, uh, yeah. Then he they... also hears Doctor. And I love his line because Uhura has been listening to, you know, the phone and says, uh, he's in emergency surgery. He's in critical condition. He's not expected to live. And McCoy says, Jim, don't leave him in the hands of 20th century medicine. Right. Which is awesome as a line from McCoy's yep. perspective. He then, it then sets us up for uh for these things where like he gives the pill to the woman who's in for dialysis he hears a couple of doctors talking in the um in the elevator in the, in the elevator about chemotherapy and mccoy is like exasperated with the thought of chemotherapy which sounds is a like really the, blunt instrument yeah. yes it sounds is. like the spanish cancer. inquisition he says <laughs> yeah and and frankly from a 23rd century perspective that's probably how we would look back on chemotherapy because what it what it does is you poison the patient Yes. hoping to kill the cancer yeah. and not the patient. Well, it'd be, it'd be the equivalent of saying, you know, going back to the 17th century and having them treat you, treat a broken leg or something like that. Right, with, or yeah. treat you with leeches. Well, yeah. uh, the, as we've established in Star Trek, they have pills for radiation. They, like they treat you, you know, I mean, pills mm-hmm. for huh? cancer. Hyronolin. Yes, hyronolin treatment, yeah. yes. I was trying to remember that. 
So, uh, yes, the, so the, the Dr. McCoy says it's like the Spanish Inquisition. And then, uh, they find, um, uh, Chekhov. They find the room was being treated. They trick the, they somehow trick the, uh, guards, the cops. The cops the aren't very, aren't, aren't very bright. They're not very bright. I, I uh, love the line here where uh, McCoy says that uh, Jillian, <laughs> yes. who's on the gurney, has immediate postprandial upper abdominal distension, which is a real thing. It means yes. immediately after eating a meal, you get bloated and have have stomach in, have stomach pain. <laughs> um, or as he puts it, as he explains it to Jim in a minute, cramps. Yeah, um, right. But then he also appears to misuse a couple of bits of medical jargon because when the guards balk at letting them through, he says, do you want an acute case? And acute in medical context just normally means sudden onset. And it's already, if it's immediate postprandial, then you've already had sudden onset. Again, this is, the cops don't know that. It just sounds intimidating. (laughs) If it's an acute case, it's it's important, yes. But but then when he's in the surgical theater and he's talking to the surgeon and he's describing the symptoms and says, what would you do with these symptoms? And the guy says, fundoscopic examination. And, and okay, fundoscopic examination means looking in his eyeballs with a tool. I mean, not <laughs> right. drilling holes in his head, which is how McCoy interprets it. It's, it just means looking in his eyes to try to figure out what's going on with these symptoms. Well, I, to be fair, he says, fundoscopic examination, McCoy interrupts, that's unrevealing, so that the doctor is well, saying, true. well, then we'll do a simple evacuation of the expanding epidural hematoma. Okay. That's right. So, so that, but it all amounts to McCoy like, oh my gosh, this is stone knives and bearskins to steal a line from a yeah. different episode of Star Trek, and uh, drilling hells in the man's head, and so they... Kirk ushers them into another room and uh, phases the door to keep them in there. And uh, McCoy, we're dealing with medievalism here, puts the device on his head and wakes up. <laughs> wakes up Chekhov. Um, name, Pavel, talk to me. Name, rank. Pavel, Chekhov, rank, admiral. Yeah, he's like. <laughs> yeah, great, great line. And then we have cheery escape music yes. as they're racing out of the out of the hospital and we meet the dialysis lady again <laughs> and she is so happy she's telling someone the doctor gave me a pill and i grew a new kidney <laughs> and we hear a doctor saying it's fully functional <laughs> yes and they escape by going into an elevator and beaming up before the cops can get to the elevator when it reaches the next floor uh so they're now they beam not onto the bird of prey but outside the bird of prey back in golden gate park and um McCoy and Chekhov walk up the ramp and the ramp closes and Kirk is okay thanks give me the frequency and she's like no no I'm coming with you and he's like no this is a one way trip so uh, you know she gives him the frequency and then as he's being beamed out she jumps into the beam so dangerous she's lucky they didn't end up as one meat puddle apparently there are safety factors to address that issue otherwise We'd have people now. You must stand very far back from me for your own yes. safety every time <laughs> yeah. there's a beam out. Right. Also, there's something else that's neat with her in the beaming because previously she beamed onto the ship and she felt the beam before right. Right. the visual effect materialized. So she's not reacting to the visual effect. She's feeling it as mm-hmm. it happens to her. So apparently, at least this kind of transporter causes you to feel something as you go through it. Well, I suppose there's, you know, there's a sensor pass before the beam actually activates, and maybe that's right. what she felt. Something know, like that. Cannon, I don't know. Annular confinement beam. Anyway, uh, yeah. 
They, uh, Scott- and, but once she, once she's beamed on board, Kirk doesn't make any attempt at all to return her. No, nope. no, she's the, the. You've made your choice. We're going, uh, Spock. Where the hell is that power you promised me? And Spock says, "One damn minute, Admiral," which is a good line. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then they uh, they go and uh, the they the bird of prey heads out to the Bering Sea to go get the whales. Uh, Scotty says that. Uh, well, we'll need to be. Able, it's going to be tough because we're going to need to be, to be able to transport four hundred tons. I'm glad that they make this point because it's not just the whales. They have to bring up all the water for Around the whales it. with them. Uh, so I like that. Uh, Spock says, well, I'm going to need to account for the additional weight as to get us back at the right moment in time. So he's all, another nice point. The variables have changed since they've yep. uh, come here. And now the ship is different. And we've got to account for that. It's got to do it from memory. And McCoy tells Spock nobody's perfect with evident glee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, just guess. <laughs> yes, he's going to have to guess. Uh, now we have this Russian whaling ship. I think it's Russian. I kind of guess. It's actually, actually, they're speaking Norwegian, yeah. if oh, I recall okay. correctly. Yep. All right. So a, a Norwegian whaling ship, uh, sorry for the Russians, is closing on the whales, and uh, they end up, we have this dramatic moment, and the ship gets there just in time and shoots a harpoon uh, and bounces uh, off the side of the bird of prey. Really nasty looking harpoon because yeah. we've been bonding with these whales and then we see this harpoon <laughs> gun. It's not a hand thrown harpoon. Oh, yes. It's a gun. Nowadays it's, it's a cannon. A big yeah. thing harpoon into one of these whales that we love. Yep. So Scotty beams him aboard and we have a quote. Uh, uh, Kirk oh, but, gives, but it, yep. it, it like hits the invisible ship and it's like clunk and falls <laughs> into the water. Yes, that yep. was a nice moment. Uh, and then the ship decloaks, and it's huge compared to the whaling vessel, so and it's the really intimidating. The, yeah, the yeah. face of the guy as he's turning the wheel, like, ah! ah, ah. <laughs> well, also, you so, got this big torpedo launcher right in your face, like, yes, yeah, let's that's get out true. of here. <laughs> so uh, the, the whales are beamed aboard, and Kirk quotes D.H. Lawrence from Whales Weep Not. They say the sea is cold, but the seas contain the hottest blood of all. I think he has this at his fingertips, you know? he's Or has he been preparing for this, you know, and... In his spare time, I don't know, but yeah. uh, he he was googling Klingon Wikipedia quotables <laughs> yes. during well, this. Yeah, Shakespeare's in there, so D. H. Lawrence must be in there too. So uh, in the yeah. original Klingon, so uh, women in love, the Klingon version. <laughs> yeah. So after the uh, time trip, this time through, we don't see all the weird special effects, and they're still awake. Last time they were knocked out before the time ship. There's the other time that they did something in the atmosphere that they should not do. They Which went is- into warp in atmosphere. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, if in in theory that should cause like damage to the atmosphere, but right. apparently not. Yes, we've had other times where we're told they can't go to warp in the atmosphere. Uh just like you can't uh, jump to hyperspace in Star-, Star Wars in the atmosphere until you have to. Yep. So mm-hmm. <laughs> they uh they time trip, they're still awake. Um the ship is out of control because of the alien watch uh, probe. And they end up crashing into the into the bay, San Francisco Bay, and they have to abandon ship by jumping into the water. So most of the crew on the bridge jumps through the escape hatch that's there conveniently. Uh, but Kirk has to go down to the hangar, which is or the 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 hangar, but the um, the bay cargo bay where the whales are, and Scotty and Jillian, uh, which is filling up with water, and he has to open up the the door the doors to let him out. So it's he Kirk has to trigger the trigger the explosive bolts to open it up. That's yep. right. So Kirk has to swim underwater to blow the hatch to save the whales. The whales sing, the probe leaves. Now, an interesting thing about the whales singing in the probe, uh, I never noticed before that when the whales go hit, whales 
go head down to the bottom of the ocean when they sing. There's yes. this, this behavior. And the probe imitates that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, they, and the probe has a little extension of a ball in a ray of light yes. that mirrors the fin of the whale as it's mm-hmm. head down. I thought it was mirroring the eye. So we kind of get a close-up of the whale's eye and then a close-up of the ball, too. I, I, it could be either, but it's yeah. very interesting. Um, it's a ni- nice visual touch. Either way, it provides some sort of perspective on the, the probe that you know which way is up and down. Yeah, that, that actually yeah, gives us that clue of, of the orientation of the probe. Uh, also, I got the sense that something, even though it's a brief conversation, that something very sad is being communicated, and then the drone retracts the ball and leaves. Yes, yes. It's satisfied with whatever the George and Gracie tell it. Um, the clouds part, power comes back, and the crew goes swimming, uh, including throwing Spock into the water <laughs> when he didn't want to. Uh, apparently, he apparently he can swim. Uh, so now we cut to after this events, Kirk and the crew are marched into the Federation Council and presented to face the face the music, face the charges, and all charges are dismissed against them, uh, but one. Uh, Kirk is reduced in rank to captain, and given the 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 duty that fits him so well, which is to be in command of a starship. And they're given command of the new Enterprise A. In, in other words, he's given exactly what he wants. Exactly. Yes. Well, he did save the planet, the the, and the headquarters of the Federation and Starfleet. So you know, a little yeah. of that. Also, Sarek, in talking to Spock, admits that his opposition to Spock's enrollment in Starfleet may have been incorrect, which is huge. That is a you huge know thing. as an admission. Yes. Um. And uh, Jillian also gives Kirk the brush off here. Yeah. Uh, he's like Kirk's like, hey. W- when can I find you? Can I give you a call sometime? And she says, yeah. don't worry, I'll find you. <laughs> That's the last we see oh. of Jillian. <laughs> uh, but she does give him a kiss on the cheek. That's uh, a nice little brush off there. Yeah, I, I did like this. You know, Spock does ask Sarek to give a message to his mother. Tell her, I feel fine, which is a nice uh, double meaning mm-hmm. uh, there. And uh, there, then we have the crew in space dock in their shuttle. Uh, in, uh, I, think it, I think it's Scotty who says they'll give us a freighter. Uh, you know that that no, it was uh. I thought Scott Scotty was the one who who expressed his that he he feared it was going to be the Excelsior. Well, uh, Sulu says I'm hoping for Excelsior because he's oh. going to be the captain of Excelsior soon. Uh, and and Scotty says ah that why would you want that bucket of bolts? And <laughs> then uh, uh and, and in reality, it would be when their orders were cut, it would have the name of the ship they're going to be serving yep. on in the orders. Exactly. But this is a movie, and we're getting a dramatic reveal, right? Now, uh, I do want to back up a second, speaking of Scotty and the Excelsior, when they're reading off the charges in the Federation Council Chambers, and the, the camera's panning across the crew, and as they get to uh, causing uh, sabotaging a Federation starship, and Scotty, James Dewan does the whole, like, uh, looking down, like a little uncomfortable as it's panning <laughs> past. That was a good moment. That was good. Uh, and then we come over the top of Excelsior in the shuttle in the space dock, and we see Enterprise A for the first time. And I remember watching that on screen, and the, and the theater cheered to see the Enterprise. Nice. Yeah. Because uh, that was a good moment. Because the Enterprise is part of the crew, part of the cast. Mm-hmm. It's, it's part of the show. It's, it's like a, the TARDIS. Exactly. Yep. You got to have it. So, uh, and then and they course, immediately take her out instead of you know doing a shakedown and getting yeah. to know the crew. But Which we start out with the the next movie that may or may not happen or may have just been a fever dream on Kirk's part, but that's another story. 
Yes, or according to the autobiography of James Kirk book, uh, it was a a movie made on some alien planet about them. <laughs> <laughs> a very bad movie. So, uh, and that's uh, and then that's where we end. We they 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 go off to do adventures. So, uh, I mean, I'm, I'll ask you, what do you think? But I know you guys both have said that you this yep. is this is one of your favorites. De- definitely, definitely. You know, again, this is one that we enjoy that I enjoy personally. Um, I will say, however, you know, we, we've discussed before, you know, issues of politics and things like that. This is how you can get across a political message without being preachy. Right. Yeah. You know, because we've Kirk, had complaints even, about other episodes of, of shows, whether Doctor Who or Star Trek, that get preachy. This doesn't. Yeah. It, 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 a, a little, I mean, we'd get a little, tiny bit. little bit of that. Like at the end, Kirk says when man was killing these creatures, he was killing his own future. Yeah. But that's as far as it goes. That's not bad. Although right. today, he referred to humans collectively as man. man. What a <laughs> sexist. Yeah. Right, right. And then the other, other thing is, you know, when we talked about... Uh, Enterprise uh, episode with the at Pajem, we talked about how the Andorians right. never showed up. Well, they there was an Andorian officer in Starfleet, right? That's right. And, he was there and, was one at the Federation Council. There was one there. Did, yep. Again, no speaking line or anything, but you saw him. And then That's finally, right. uh, they had the comm table in Starfleet Command looked really familiar. They repurposed it as the engineering table in TNG. Oh. They just pulled the top off and put the engineering yeah. top on it. Gotcha, gotcha. That's true. That's true. Very good. Very good. Jimmy, any uh, last notes? I liked how I, I really enjoyed this movie. I like the nice, complex plotting, and I yep. like how it's so different than the standard Wrath of Khan formula. As much as I like Wrath of Khan, I don't want to see that every movie. This is goes in a completely other direction. It is so much fun. Yep. Um, it deserved to be the best selling movie of the time uh, for Star Trek. I also like how. Leonard Nimoy performs in this and the way his character is written because he is not classic Spock in this. He yeah. is like he's recovering from the from right. his memory reinstall and he is he's not at the top of his game and so he's having to cope with that and he is comes across you're kind of dealing with a more childlike Spock who right. comes across as more humble and trusting and flexible and trying to figure this out. And I like, you know, in like when he defers to his mom about the importance of feelings, even though he doesn't understand it at the beginning of the film, but because she thinks they're valuable, he, he'll be open to this. And then at the end of the movie, when he's McCoy's telling him he's going to have to guess and <laughs> Kirk doesn't doesn't balk at that. And McCoy explains what he's saying is he trusts your guesses more than most people. And yeah, Spock says, certainty. you, you are, you are saying it is a compliment. Then I will try to make the best guess I can. And it's like, he recognizes the compliment. He's flattered by it. And it de- he's determined to try to do even better. Right. And it's like, there's just something nice and charming about that. And so I like this kind of childlike charming Spock that's logical, but flexible and going along with stuff. You know, you mentioned the, the how often they try to recreate uh, the the success of Rathacon by making Rathacon over and over. One of the things that happens is that Star Trek eventually they start they try to replicate the success of Voyage Home by by having this we're traveling back in time to a previous century sort mm-hmm. of shtick again. Uh, in they do it in Deep Space Nine, they do it in Voyage uh, Voyager, they do it in TNG, and it none none of them work 
quite as well. They're, they, they, Except, it, well, and quite as well would be a judgment call, but the only time it really comes across nicely is yep. the Deep Space Nine Trials and Tribulations, where they go into the past oh. and play it for comedy like yeah. they did here. Right, right. It's uh, it's our future, their past. But yes, yep. yeah, that that's probably the best traveling to the past epi- uh, one that they have. But most of the other ones, were, especially where they travel to somewhat close in time to us, whether it's 20th century or 21st century, it just doesn't work as well uh, as this does. This really works great. Uh, so, all right. So uh, I think, that about wraps it up. We've uh, we, we've we've talked almost as long as the movie, but uh, we do want to. No, take... it's only seventy five percent as long as the movie. <laughs> right, exactly. right. So we want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create secrets of Star Trek, including Theo V, Paul B, William N, Lisa P, and George O. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. We'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of Star Trek IV The Voyage Home? Uh, do you hate it? We'd love to hear from someone who didn't like it. We'd love to know why. So let us know what you think about it and what we had to say about it by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Media. Or send us an email to trek at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Next Generation episode, Last Outpost. Until then, Father Cory Stika, thank you for joining me in sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Oh, not the last outpost. <laughs> Live long and prosper. <laughs> and once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember... Captain, there be whales here! <laughs>